Ladies and gentlemen, it is May 12, 2022. I am Matt Belinsky, and this is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. So the battle of the sexes is raging on right now. Gender politics are coming to a head in America around two issues. One, the supposed or anticipated overturning of Roe v. Wade and the abortion issue, and the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, which is a bit of a proxy battle uh, over the legacy of Me Too and where Me Too has left our society and gender relations. And it's interesting that these two issues are coming to a head almost simultaneously. So the abortion issue incredibly dense, incredibly complicated, despite contrary to what you might hear from some people. Um, I'm going to give that issue its due on the next episode. That's it's not one I'm going to dive into too deeply today, but we'll just get into one aspect of that because I think it has a parallel to the Amber Heard Johnny Depp situation. On both the abortion issue and Me Too and as it's being almost adjudicated between uh, with the, the within the context of Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, this whole idea that there's one, you know, stayed fixed, calcified female opinion and one calcified fixed male opinion. And the, the sexes are essentially battling over that. That is one ridiculous in concept, but two, just factually wrong. Right. And this is where I keep on going back to on the abortion debate. And one argument I push against and because I push back against it, people think that I'm anti-abortion, but I'm not. I'm pro-choice with some limitations. Once again, not going to get into the specifics, but it, it's like there's an underlying argument uh, about abortion that men should not have an opinion or be passing any laws having to do with women's bodies, right? That this is that the that any opposition to abortion is just being propagated by men. And, and that's simply false. If you look at any polling on this topic. There's millions upon millions of women who are against abortion. Once again, I don't necessarily agree with them, but don't take it up with me. Take it up with them. If you look at opinions on abortion, you can look at any number of polls. The idea that there's some big gap where all these men are uh, against abortion and all these women are pro-abortion and there's this massive gender gap there is simply not true, right? There's a very small gap within four to six points typically on, on any variety of abortion issues and abortion sub-issues. So if you want to in a democratic nation and, you know, it with in trying to adjudicate the free exchange of ideas, if we need to work through this issue, we need to acknowledge that there are a ton of women who are against abortion. Right. And that the this kind of oversimplification of one male opinion, one female opinion is not an accurate representation of reality. So I think that that's something that needs to be wrestled with as we go through the extra exercise of trying to resolve the abortion issue. So, OK. Putting a pin in that, going to get to that next week. Uh, similarly, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp, like I said, a bit of the proxy battle for the legacy of Me Too. Look, now, looking back on Me Too, where did it go right? Where did it go wrong? Where did it leave us? What are our views and approaches towards gender relations, towards assessing the validity of claims one direction or the other. And during the the heyday of Me Too, let's call it 2016 through 2000, I mean, could it just be the Trump era? Was that the golden age of Me Too, 2016 to 2020? Maybe an interesting question to ponder. Um, but the idea was that this was just women fighting back finally against male oppression and that the kind of tropes and considerations and mechanics of Me Too were supported by all women uh, in for instance, the quote and the slogan, believe all women. And if you look under the hood, it, it, once again, simply not true. There were tons and tons of women who did not, were not on board, were not on aligned with that way of thinking and did not believe that any member of one gender or the other should be per se believed just based on accusation. And so you're seeing that play out now quite a bit on the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial because everyone is now, it seems like now everyone has become comfortable with the notion that, so we'll see how this trial plays out, but it seems like 
now it is an acceptable public opinion that there could be a female who presents herself as a victim of domestic abuse or sexual violence and is actually lying is actually making false allegations whether fully false or partially false right um and so okay as i record this it's we've seen, heard mostly from johnny depp in this trial so far a couple days into amber heard's testimony and she's giving we have to assess her validity a, as well and maybe she maybe some of her claims while not all true maybe some of her claims do have validity and it does seem that johnny depp wasn't necessarily some angel but if you look at the totality of the testimony it's pretty clear that whatever amber heard presented herself as such some damsel in distress poor you know victim of one way abuse and sexual violence it's the likelihood that that is true is incredibly minuscule and now it is acceptable to voice that it would not have been acceptable or you would have been putting yourself at risk three four years ago if there was a, a female allegation of abuse against a male to come to the male's defense meant you were putting yourself at risk there was consequence to that so there doesn't seem to be anywhere we can now assess this more soberly based on the fact or at least attempt to assess those based on the facts. So this tweet I found the other day I thought was very telling. It goes, I would like to thank Amber Heard for nailing the coffin shut on the ridiculous assertion that 50% of the population should automatically be trusted at face value for no other reason than their gender. Okay, so first off, yes, the idea that you should be trusted just specifically based on your gender, absolutely ridiculous. Okay, so now if we're looking at how the Johnny Depp Amber Heard situation is waking us back up to that reality, I mean, you, you look at the gender breakdown of who's supporting who, and there's just a ton of women who seem to be skeptical of Amber Heard. So were these women kind of part of the Me Too, uh, Believe All Women hysteria in 2017 and 18, and now this situation has woken them up? Or did they have these views, but were scared of the social consequences? consequences and the, and the pushback if they dared voice any opinion to the contrary during that period, right? We were all living in a period where we had to, we had to buy into the hysteria that you were putting yourself at risk by the very reasonable assertion, basic due process that someone that the accused has a presumption of innocence and that any claims need to be put to scrutiny. Because the idea that people don't have ill motives, don't have malicious motives is ridiculous. That why would someone lie? Well, because they want to get this person. Because they either want money, they want to harm someone, they have selfish ulterior motives. That is part of humanity, and that's why we have to put assertions and claims, particularly claims of serious abuse, to scrutiny, right? And we just toss that concept out the window. So I posted this tweet on my Instagram, and if you look at the likes, it's overwhelmingly female. So it seems to expose the myth that there truly is a battle of the sexes, that Within each gender, within male and female, there is any variety of opinions and points of view and perspectives. And unless we discuss, unless we try to work through gender issues, understanding that we're going to keep on missing the mark. And there seems to be an imbalance. I don't want to get too woo woo right now, but an imbalance in the equilibrium, the spiritual equilibrium between male and female in America right now that manifests itself in a number of different ways. But I think if we're going to try to find you know, that equilibrium once again or come to healthier gender relations, we've got to understand that there's not just just one point of view based on your chromosomes, that based on whether you're a man or woman, that there's such a variety of opinion within each group. And we have to take account. We have to take that into account when trying to work through these issues. Seems pretty sensible, no? Okay. So a gentleman that I have on to discuss these issues this week, his name is Greg Ellis. Now, what is Greg Ellis's relevance to these issues? One, uh, he's good friends with Johnny Depp and has been 
close and alongside Johnny throughout this entire saga. Two, he had his life destroyed by false allegations from his ex-wife. You've got to hear the story. It is beyond belief, right? And we need to be abreast. We need to be cognizant of the consequences and the harm that come from false allegations and the fact that they, while they are not the majority, by some, some assessments, they are the majority. But regardless of how often false accusations occur, what the consequences of false allegations are. So Greg has written a book on this topic topic called The Respondent. It goes through both his personal saga and, you know, how this is adjudicated, how, how this is seen by the American legal system, particularly the family law system, which I think a lot of people are unaware of. The family law system operates by completely different standards and precepts than the criminal law system. And a lot that, that really, there's a lot of injustice here, right? So the family law court system and family law in general seems to be incredibly outdated. It, it's a relic from uh, the early 20th century when men were just the overwhelming amount of the workforce and the income in most families were one income families. And it's shaped in that manner. And I think it needs updating. So Greg is going to describe what he has seen from the belly of the beast, both through his personal odyssey and journey through the American family law system and from what he's seen on the Johnny Depp Amber Heard situation as a bit of an insider there. I think it's a super interesting discussion. So our conversation looks at this issue both with a microscope as to Greg's personal circumstances and the, the herd depth scenario and zooming out and looking at it with a telescope as kind of a broader survey and understanding of gender relations, um, both, you know, macro or both kind of intangibly and as is looked upon by the American family law system. So that conversation is coming up in just a minute. Please stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Matt Belinsky, and this is The Prevailing Narrative. Today, I'm here with Greg Ellis. Greg is a renowned actor appearing in such films as Star Trek and Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. He's also the author of numerous books, including The Respondent, Exposed in the Cartel of Family Law. The Respondent is a firsthand account of Greg's odyssey through the family law system after false accusations from his ex-wife left him committed to a mental institution against his will, destitute, and estranged from his children. The Respondent includes an intro from a man named Johnny Depp, who's currently the centerpiece of a national conversation about domestic abuse, false allegations, and trial in the court of public opinion. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be on. So in your writings and some of your social media content, um, before we get into the specifics of, of this odyssey I just referenced, um, you refer to the people as the respondent sometimes conceptually. Um, and I always found that interesting. So I was wondering, before we get in, into your specific story, um, cons- you know, what is the respondent as a concept as you use it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's multiple things that, that it means to me, uh, the word itself, how we define it, um, how we can be more responsible and self-reliant and less reactive, particularly in our cancel culture times where everyone's drunk on Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. as I call it. Um, <laughs> and uh, and um, how do we respond to, to allegations, particularly false allegations? Um, so in a sense, you know, I talk about we're all response able. We all have the ability to be more responsive and less reactive mm-hmm. to influence our impulse control in these trying social media times, uh, where everything is about the clickbait and the reactionary, mm-hmm. um, you know, impulse. Um, so it's really, it's really that, you know, and I, and I, and it part of it as well, because of my odyssey and my journey, uh, my personal journey. Um, was how I could reflect back on self because I think that's ultimately where it begins and ends is looking into the mirror of self. And it's very interesting humble. in that the it, it, it goes back, it takes me back to a book called A Man in Full by Tom Wolfe in that one of the threads, one of the storylines in that book was about uh, a man who was tested 
Um, and uh, this was a blue collar worker who was not, you know, kind of as thoughtful and sophisticated as a lot of Tom Wolfe's characters and uh, turned towards, you know, kind of his journey uh, uh, into stoicism and dealing with that and, you know, uh, and kind of looking into the abyss and seeing, his, you know, what looks back at him. Um, and I find that kind of an interesting bookend to how you, you see the respondent. Um, so the age of cancel culture and hysteria. Um, why do you th- social media is obviously the the low hanging fruit and the the easy explanation for why this era seems to have a bias towards hysteria. Um, do you have any further thoughts on why this era seems to ha- not have the guardrails against judicious kind of patient thought and consideration of the facts that prior eras may have had? Mm, good question. I think part of it is the age of modernity um, and technology. I think uh, going back further than that, the evolution of language and words and the etymology of words. I do think recently we've had this great awakening, I think, of the 2010s that ushered in an age of unreason, uh, of uncivil discourse and an era, if you will, of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think, you know, in terms of uh, Capitalism as well, you know, I talked about woke capitalism. I think we're living in an era of woke capitalism in which companies pretend to care about social justice to sell products to people who pretend to hate capitalism. And um, yeah. and, and there, there is, it's almost like the upside down, you know? Yeah, yeah. It is, uh, it, it is a strange in, inversion. And also it feels odd that so it's so transparent that these profit-driven corporations seem to be pandering, but everyone, there's this kind of preference falsification where everyone has to seemingly play along and pretend that what they're doing actually has substance substance to it. But, you know, it's it's purely just a, a good idea, that a, a thought bubble that sprouted up in the marketing department. Yeah, I think the woke, the woke wave has kind of crested and people are beginning to see behind the curtain more. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, with regards to all of the touchpoint issues that have been uh, out there recently, like BLM and uh, critical race theory and, um, you know, trans activism, many of these these hot button issues, um, people are really feeling like they can at last maybe speak up and not not without the fear of being canceled, but the uh, the the courage to not not care as much about being canceled as like in yeah in assessing bark versus bite they might they, there still might be some bite anticipated but the the bite the uh the bite's not going to go as deep um perhaps and one of the other issues where that's some of the hysteria seems to be dissolving is around uh believe all women and the kind of disregarding of due process uh in you know any sort of accusation of sexual or romantic misconduct um and so uh, obviously Johnny Depp trial is front and center right now and we'll get to that in a minute but your yeah, just your what journey you said about believable women you know i've said this before we shouldn't believe any all yeah group of people we should Correct. listen uh to individuals that happen to be a part of the group uh, i think that's you know important well, that just betrays every principle of due process that traces all the way back to the Magna Carta and that we built our society on and you know, the understanding that, believe it or not, not everybody has great motives. Uh, it, dismissing the notion that people have malicious motives or are fabricating lies to harm others out of uh, s- selfish concerns. I mean, th- this is just a basic precept of humanity. And uh, as, as I think we've seen recently, to believe that everybody, that why, uh, the question of why would someone lie, if you can't come up with an answer for 
why would someone lie? You're not thinking hard enough. Yeah, we all have the we all have the propensity for malevolence within us. Uh, and I think you know as well. You know, you mentioned jurisprudence and the Magna Carta. That's a good throwback to a, a long, uh, long ago. Is is what I've seen recently with 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 speech being violence and the speech mm-hmm. police and hate crimes and um, you know where is the line, the incitement of violence? I mean, apologies for non crimes will or hate crimes that are spoken words uh, will merely expand the scope of what constitutes a crime and your guilt is presumed axiomatically you know and your apologies won't change that your apology will generate no forgiveness whatsoever it's merely an admission that your persecutors were right all along and they'll come after you even more that's the spanish inquisition the salem witch trials it's this um it's this notion superstition and hysteria Right. And yeah, and, and jurisprudence, as you mentioned, the, the, the burden of proof being on the, um, on the accused rather than the accuser. There's a reason why we introduced yes. jurisprudence into Western civilization and um, to do away with the guilty till proven more guilty. Yeah. And, and this is something that comes up in conversations that I have all the time, because anytime I try to inject the notion of due process or freedom of speech or uh, burden of proof, it, all of these things into conversations outside of a courtroom, you know, because I'm a lawyer, I always get the retort. Well, this isn't a courtroom. This isn't the legal system. Well, guys, there's a reason the legal system operates the way it does is because over centuries we have refined something to try to it, it is the best set of policies to aim towards a truthful outcome and justice. And while imperfect and there, there's a reason why we have due process and presumption of innocence they're good things the idea that they should only exist where they're legally mandated to exist is of, of course nonsense yeah and the notion that it, it's not going to affect you if it's outside a court courtroom is spurious i mean you look at recently i think it was last year scotland brought in a hate crime law that, that made it um, dystopian permissible for law enforcement and the police to enter your home and arrest and detain you for words you've spoken around your kitchen table yeah so I mean, people need to wise up on this, right? They, there's they, once again, there's a number of guard. There were a number of guardrails in place, and understanding that you know, while uh, the line drawn from freedom of speech might drift in one direction here or there a little bit, in some parts of the Western world, it's starting to to get into kind of a sci- sci-fi dystopian realm. Uh, you know, Minority Report is the is the film that everybody references, but uh, being punished for things that you may have not, you know, things that you've communicated in private or simply expressing oneself, you know, that do not slant towards threats of violence or other uh, types of speech that have been deemed legal over the over the centuries. And it's starting to creep uh, creep in there a little bit. And uh, as we've seen with lots of these movements, um, people, many people don't wake up to it until it's too late. So hopefully... Yeah, but- no, I was yeah. going to say that there's there's this groupthink. I mean, we talk about the, the, the identity politics and groupthink and, you know, the objection to identity politics is not to people, people having identities that they find meaningful or they want to identify as. It's an objection to the politicizing of the identity and telling people that because someone has a certain identity, they should think, feel and act a certain way as though they're not individuals. And that's... That's the mob mentality and the cancel culture of social murder. You know, and identity politics, it, it damages our sense of, of shared humanity and, and exactly. reduces empathy between groups because there's always going to be groups that we identify with, right? Well, because also the the one thing that w- the one place that we can all come together and find common ground is that we're humans, right? Is that we're, we have a shared human experience. And if we... Uh, if you encourage everybody to view everything through the prism of their identity, you're robbing the people of that shared space as humans. Yeah. And I think we're, we are, I agree. We're in this position because 
I think identity politics is, in its current form at least, is a collective ideology. It's it's very collectivist. It it, it doesn't value well, tribal. Well, yeah, tribal, collectivist, uh, you know, the, the group, the mob. It doesn't value an individual for the content of his or her character, but instead makes these prejudicial assessments on the basis of race or gender and sexuality. And so in the name of anti-racism, identity politics has kind of rehabilitated racial thinking. And I come from, you know, obviously a small town in England. So, you know, I, I'm not as, uh, as, as connected to the historical, um, you know, uh, the, the oppression that, that, that's happened within America. But there does seem to be a lack of conversation about class. Um, uh, and it's more focused on the immutable characteristic. And there are many people suffering. You know, everyone, I believe everyone's suffering with something. Sure. And there's been uh, a, some peripheral assessments of this era in that it, it some people, th uh, you know, theorize the following, that because the upper class wanted to fend off any class hostilities, class-based hostilities, when income inequality shot through the roof uh, in America, you know, during the first part of the 21st century, and that the elites, while not, you know, it, it purely centralized and conspiratorially, um, that the elites and corporations and the professional managerial class decided to gear the conversation towards race, ethnicity, and identity as opposed to material concerns because, oh, oh, oh damn, if those who have more, uh, more challenges material lives start getting pissed off at us just based off class if that's where the battle line is drawn we're going to lose and we're in trouble we can divide and conquer everybody by just chopping them up into identity categories yeah i i hear you and going back to actually you know historically find out where where these movements where these i mean i remember thinking uh when i first started out in the respondent like where did this toxic masculinity catchphrase come from and i speak i spoke with erin pizzi who Wonderful lady. She's she's in her eighties now. Fifty, nearly fifty-two years ago, she started the the world's first uh, mm -hmm. domestic abuse shelter for women, and she found that of six of the ten women who came into her shelter were as violent or more violent than the men manly that, that they left. And she spoke mm -hmm. out about this back in, uh, gosh, it must have been the 70s. And she was vilified. A cat was poisoned and killed. A bomb squad was sent to her home. And she, was, she had to, she got hounded out of England. And, and I, in conversation with her, she told me about this meeting in 1969 of the feminist movement. And that they decided at that meeting, I believe it was in New York, to pivot their message to focus on two words. And those two words were toxic and masculinity. And mm. then decades later, of course, what do we see? We see this demonization of masculinity, all men bad, toxic masculinity, smash the patriarch. And I don't think demonizing masculinity is, is the, it's not the solution, it's the problem. You know, at a time when modern, modern fathers and males and men and younger generation of boys are bombarded with these messages about the deeply corrosive effects of toxic masculinity, we're also confronted with institutions psychologically conditioned now to think that that the male, the man, masculinity is toxic, and it's it's nonsense. I was talking with a journalist the other day uh, about this trial and uh, mm. the Johnny Depp trial, and mid conversation he said, "Well, you know, we men have to make amends for our five five to six hundred years of patriarchal oppression." And I'm thinking, hang on a minute. I mean, you know, there is some. There are some things that men got right, aren't there? 
please. <laughs> Let's call it the building of society. And also, and this is what I always go back to, is that the complete I ignorance as to how the physical environment worked, okay? You want to know why men were the ones who worked back in 1783? Because women did have to be in the home at that time, because if not, it was hard to keep a child alive, right? The go look at infant birth, uh, at, at infant death rates. Okay. It was, we did not, you did not just go down to the grocery store and go get baby formula. You didn't have running. You didn't ha just turn on the faucet and have running water all the time. You didn't have machines doing your laundry. Like the physical environment only really over the past 75 to a hundred years has even accommodated uh, not having the caregiver, the mother in the home to uh, raise the child and make sure that the child doesn't die each day. The physical environment and uh, the before certain technological developments did not lend itself to two income households and not having uh, at least one caregiver at the home during the day all the time. And given the challenges of the physical environment, the male was more physically equipped to be out there, whether it was, you know, whether it was farming and hunting and uh, during a more agricultural uh, agrarian periods or as things became industrialized, taking on more industrial professions and whatnot. It's like everyone thinks that air can, you know, they didn't have air conditioning in 1663, okay? People encountered a physical environment that we could not even fathom, and gender roles flowed mostly from that. Now, it's fantastic that technology has evolved, that now technology allows us to d essentially outsource or, or uh, machinize uh, any number of life's functions that free up women and free, free up the you know, uh, parental relationship that everybody can go and pursue uh, uh, their, you know, their vocations and not necessarily have to be consumed with these day-to-day -day items. It's great that we live in that era, but if we're going to essentially create this alternate history where uh, it, it, where we still encounter, where our our ancestors encountered the physical environment that we do, and gender roles were just a uh, a, a vestige of oppression. That's simply not true. It is, in fact, it's ridiculous. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Yeah, I mean, I think of hunter gatherer. I think of well, I mean, you just said it all. I don't really need to add to that. I think we, you know, in Jungian psychology, we talk of animus and anima, and the feminine traits within the masculine, and the masculine traits within the feminine, and perhaps the, you know, perhaps I don't know. Maybe some of what we're seeing is this: the rise of the masculine traits within the feminine, and um, that 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 need for dominance and power or the mm -hmm. necessity or desire for that. Um, sure. And and ultimately, I think, you know, I've talked about this a lot on my show, you know, with the um, uh, with equality feminism. You know, there are different types of feminism. There's, you know, the equality, Absolutely. empowerment, um, true uh, empathic feminists who, who want equal rights. And I'm with them and I'm all on board with that message. But this more radical strain of third and fourth wave um, neo-feminism, one might call it, or postmodern progressive feminism that 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 seeks to vilify men and males. And I read some of the literature that's written by these female authors sometimes that are calling they're calling for the exact same behaviour that they're vilifying in the man. Um, Absolutely, and it's just preposterous. And that's you know they're selling loads of copies of books and getting published and so 
our society's uh, in an interesting place. We we have a strange the the chi the equilibrium between the sexes is definitely off right now, and it's also it's it's a bit of a generational thing because I look at my mother; she's in her early seventies. She's a baby boomer feminist, a second wave feminist, and those notions were purely that that they sh- that females should not be discriminated against um, for professional concerns or the desire to get out into the workforce and be treated just like everybody else. Seems pretty reasonable, does it not? Um, a lot of they're not as vocal because they're not young and they're not on social media. But if you speak with my mother and you know uh, and some of her friends and that generation of feminists, they're not necessarily on board with a lot of stuff that they're seeing right now, particularly in terms of um, of how the approach to gender politics is being taken and how sexual politics funnels in there. Because they, uh, you know, these days the fem- along, uh, along with this new fourth wave of feminism comes sex empowerment. That not only are we searching. for for professional respect and equality in the in the workplace, but also uh, a celebration of female sexuality and desire, and that was not part of the second wave of feminism back in the '60s and '70s. Uh, and they, they were trying to, to a certain extent, desexualize their image. That they were looking to be, they're saying, "Hey, judge, uh, stop judging us just based on our our physical beauty or physical purposes or sexuality or whatnot." Um, and now that's if you want to see something that's flipped on its head, it's the 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 vanguard of the feminist movement and how they view um, women presenting themselves as sexual beings. And if you talk to a feminist in 1972 and a feminist in 2022, they will have completely different views on that. Yeah, that's you're spot on. And I think the truth is that you know we we have this seemingly callous indifference right now to male death and suffering and a, a disconcerting comfort level with male disposability. Uh, yeah. She's been, I think, it's been society's default position for probably thousands of years. Um, you know, in terms of um, yeah, well, because that's another point, and, and then people, when people try to explain, okay, why are males so dominant at the upper echelons of society, leadership, um, you know, both political and business leadership? It's, well, men generally slant higher, and men generally slant lower. Okay, if you go look at the dregs of society, criminals, homeless. Uh, suicide, depression, you're going to see that the numbers are far higher for males. So males are likely or more likely to slant high and slant low. And that all traces back <clears throat> to uh, two kind of evolutionary causes that males needed to be more uh, risk aver- uh, risk, uh, bigger risk takers and have more of an appetite for risk for the, the largest share of humanity in our experience where they might get killed, where where they left the house each day. You know, it might have been a life or death scenario or um, whether whether or not they they succeeded at what their goals were that day would be uh, the would would be whether their family could gain sustenance and perpetuate itself right so the, these things if people don't have a historical and evolutionary perspective on it, it and just pretend that humanity woke up one day in you know 1980 and we had you know VHS the, uh, the most ancient technology is VHS and like maybe you know a low grade air conditioning system I mean, you're not going to understand why we are where, where we're at right you have to have a more more historical and longer range view to these things. Yeah, there's a difference. Uh, you know, little boys play with uh, different toys than girls. They fight with clenched fists, not sharp fingernails. And the risk reward of of the male, uh, you know, the, to go out. I mean, I think of I think of the matriarch and the patriarch, mother and father. You know, a mother. And this is obviously I'm generalizing here for anyone who's listening and thinking, oh gosh, that's such a misogynist, stereotypical man thing to say. Um, you know, 
mother will bring in the child. You, are you okay? We'll tend to and nurture. You know, that's that mother sure. nurture. And and I think part of the the, the patriarchal role is to risk take is to. Um, you know, take some take some risks and 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 teach, uh, particularly our, our our boys. You know, um, you know what life's going to be tough. There's, it's going to be dangerous, and there's going to be some mishaps and mistakes along the way. And uh, but you have to take risks for for, for reward. Otherwise, you live a safe uh, a safe. You know, and that that is not and try and here's the strangest thing about the, all of this to me when you have to caveat. Uh, a comment about acknowledging, you know, the feminine as oh, nurturing yeah. that that you have to caveat it that some people will see that as a bad thing. Anyone ever, you know, anyone ever query whether these are actually good things? It's a good thing that females are nurturing and then men are more uh, are bigger risk takers and that this is simply a kind of uh, uh, a this is simply an acknowledgement of, you know, of the balance of polarity between the sexes and that, you know, and, and having uh, two sexes with supplemental characteristics is, is good and neither is being vilified one way or the other. It's like nobody that never seems to occur to anybody. Um, but I think what we bring it, what we, what we then uh, start to, to kind of encourage is this kind of more helicopter parented uh, kids and particularly boys, young boys, generations, boys that need feeling spaces. And of course, you know, I'm all about, you know, I'm, I'm an actor and I'm an artist. So, you know, I, I, of course I, I reside in, yeah, empathic and compassionate, um, you know, but, you know, traditionally men have, have fought wars and, you know, for the most part, run into burning buildings, put up high rise, but there is some physical attributes to the male compared to the female overall in general that are going to, and look, if, you know, I'm all for, if I remember my, ex-wife when we first married she didn't want to uh i wanted her to stay home not because mm. i had this kind of you know patriarchal outdated traditional gender roles uh, ideology just because i thought it'd be nice for her to you know be with the kids um yeah and uh and and make a beautiful home she didn't want to do that i was fine with that um i encouraged and you know got behind what she wanted which was to go out and sure. work. so you know we should be open to it but i also think this demonization of um from certain parts of society of of women who want to stay home uh and we need to champion and uh, champion that that as well and say that's if you want to do that that's a br that's one of the greatest roles of a lifetime is we need to value money yeah. valuing the, the the matriarch you know and you know going back to the dad you know the primary role of a father you know and, and the whole hunter gatherer and kind of behavior over history and time i think I, I think a primary role of a father or one of the primary roles is to maintain an aura or a presence if you will that says look you know, look and listen and watch through experience, son. Life has problems. We're going to solve them together. And, um, you know, part of that is the learning of boundary setting and self-discipline. You know, men traditionally, f fathers are more... Uh, disciplinarian. More disciplinarian, exactly. And how to instill a... You know, we learn things through the boundary setting and the roughhousing as boys. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we we get to instill a sense of empathy for, for ourselves, for our partners, for our peers and friends, uh, and eventually our, our, our wives or life partners. 
Um, and no, there there are great character lessons to be learned through the you know more traditional exp- exploration of gender roles and the demonization and you know uh, to the idea that that uh, that lending ourselves to those more traditional exercises and roles simply stifles or negates the possibility of women succeeding in the professional world is ridiculous. There's absolutely room for both, but more specifically now because you have such a, a captivating story, um, you know. You, uh, the respondent, you were originally the respondent. You had your life turned upside down. Um, as Johnny, as Johnny Depp put it, you know, in a 0.6 seconds, you can go from Cinderella to Quasimodo. And that's to a certain extent what happened to you. Um, would love to hear your saga, both uh, in your having your life turned upside down and then your journey through the family law system. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, uh, I, I write about it. The story is, is in the book, The Respondent. Um, I also have a, f- a, a free downloadable ebook as a follow up called The Code, mm-hmm. which is to help uh, people that find themselves in situations like I did. But, you know, in summary, one moment I was a successful actor and director producer living in an expansive Hollywood home uh, with my wife of 20 nearly 20 years and two young sons that i adored that were the meaning of my life um and everything changed with a knock on the door um by police and that was the first engagement if you will in a battle with america's unscrupulous and unstoppable family law cartel that's raged on for years and left me with scars my family in ashes and um, my beautiful boys without a father and the book and the project the respondent really just emerged from that uh, devastating catastrophic experience um and it i guess it's part memoir part meditation and part manifesto and um yeah it's uh, and i also offer some solutions um you know and recommendations for how we can improve this system but fundamentally i was staggered matt to learn that uh you know and you're an attorney that uh, family law is the one branch of our legal system that doesn't provide due process and the presumption of innocence and jurisprudence and to find out that criminals get more rights than parents and families and uh, by de facto children in in a branch of our legal system in 2022 is simply staggering and totally unacceptable. Yeah, that and that is something that, admittedly, I hadn't necessarily thought. I, I thought of I don't do family law, but I've got some familiarity with it. And and you think, wait a second, oh my god, an accusation of domestic violence. Okay, if you are pressing criminal charges and are trying to route that through the court system and incarcerate someone for assault, let's just say they get due process and a presumption of innocence and whatnot. But for uh, purposes of uh, uh, determining, you know, apportioning family assets or cus- child custody, and uh, and within that prism, all of a sudden, all that all that is thrown out the window. You found yourself in kind of a Kafka esque nightmare, uh, institutionalized against your will. I believe so. Five times. How was One it? One time five in solitary t- confinement in a in a police police cell. Um, how? Well, that's you know, I write about in the book that I call it the six silver bullets of high conflict divorce and the magic ballistics of family law war. Um, and they literally, this is literally the super super weapon playbook that these attorneys, like Samantha Spector, um, who represented Amanda uh, Amber Heard originally, mm-hmm. uh, attorneys like Judy Bogan, who represented my ex wife uh, Laura Wasser, the kind of high powered one thousand dollar and up um, Beverly Hills. Uh, um, cartel, as I call them, mm-hmm. um, they use this super super weapon, and um, it's it's devastating. I mean, 
the 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 notion that you can make a false allegation against anyone you can pick up the phone there is an anonymous hotline you can pick up the phone and within 15 minutes ruin someone's life um is staggering to me so i i call it the silver bullet because you know silver bullets defined as simple seemingly and that's the key word seemingly magical solutions to difficult problems and in mm -hmm. family law that's marriage disillusionment um and and it really is these silver bullets are the ammunition for the smoking gun if you will in the wild west of family law and where's more of a wild west than california um and and they have become the go-to playbook for divorce lawyers and petitioners um, and when you look at the statistics, 80% uh, of petitioners, which is the person who actually files for divorce, uh, are women. And if you look at uh, educated women, it goes up to 90%. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really just this war fighting philosophy aimed at crippling the opponent before the conflict really begins. It's uh, unethical, underhanded uh, manipulation um, to really just force the enemy, the respondent, the future ex, to fight for hearth and home and the stakes. Uh, are enormous you know they involve nothing less than your future your freedom your reputation your children your home and maybe even your life i mean i've read so many of the suicide notes from fathers and, and forsaken fathers forgotten men who just couldn't endure what i call the living grief of separation from their children and this interminable inescapable system um and i i, I coined the phrase suicide by living grief because there is a finality to um, the grief of someone passing or, or a loss. Um, but with, with this false accusation in domestic, of domestic violence, and, and again, I'm gonna preface and say that there are, there are well, I'm, you know what, I'm not gonna preface. I'm gonna say over 70% of accusations of domestic violence, of violence over 70% um, don't move from the evidentiary phase from a TRO or an EPO, a temporary restraining or uh, emergency prote protection order. Once they move to a hearing phase, they don't, they, they don't move past that, which shows that they're um, that they that they're temporary for a reason, and they're mm -hmm. easy to get. Um, yeah. And if there was any evidence there, and we don't rely on hearsay evidence anywhere else, um, it would it would stick, and they don't stick. So these people who make these false allegations are an affront to the real victims of domestic violence. Sure. Um, so yeah, I have. I think you know. I talk about the silver bullets. The, the first one I call the incarcerating incident. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the making of the false or hearsay allegation. The reputation savages the respondent um, and is meant to confuse and conflate the entire family law matter, and it does. Then you move fast to silver bullet two, which is the order of restraint. They give them out like hot dinners these days. They're so easy to get. This is when the petitioner uh, doubles down on the false allegations and uh, gains a restraining order, usually a TRO or an EPO, with the motive to force the respondent to become homeless, uh, mm -hmm. childless, and fight criminal charges sometimes. So it, it, interesting there. To become homeless is that essentially cutting them off from, let's call it, joint bank accounts and other community property assets. Is that how that works? Well, first and foremost, it's to to have a distance between the petitioner, the person who's got the TRO or the EPO. Let's say, for example, in this case, we'll reference um, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. So Amber Heard, with her attorney, uh, Samantha Spector, went to Los Angeles Stanley Moss Courthouse, I believe it was. Uh, I think it was May 2016. 
on an ex parte basis. For those who don't know, that's an emergency hearing. Mm-hmm. And if an attorney goes in ex parte, they have to give uh, notice to the other side. Correct. Um, Samantha Spector, as, as I understand it, and it's been testified in court recently, she did not give notice. They did not give notice to Laura Wasser, Johnny Depp's attorney at the time. So there's uh, a breaching of the rules. That's unethical to begin with. Um, they also knew that Johnny was, was in New York across the country and about to be in Europe on tour so he couldn't appear mm-hmm. um, at an ex parte hearing and and this judge who I believe was extremely friendly with Samantha Spector um, granted this TRO which was the basis of everything so that's the, the, the restraining order it basically meant that he had to keep a distance he couldn't go near her couldn't communicate um, and of course if there were children involved if they had children together that would probably include the children and the pets and the house and the home but Getting to your points, uh, silver bullet three, as I call it, is the silver, uh, the security log. And that's when um, the petitioner secures or steals the family possessions uh, or claims them, uh, changes the locks, the passcodes on everything, um, protects, quote unquote, the children from the respondent. And it's social, social isolation. Um, and it's a very effective weapon because in effect, it removes you from the ability to have any access to your material possessions. Um, your computer, like I was, I didn't even have access to my files, my folders, my work stuff, my computer, my entire technological life was shut down. Um, which and I, I imagine, I imagine no access to your home, which you had been the primary financier of. Yeah, I mean, I you know I left home at seventeen with very little money in my pocket and worked my entire life. We we hear a lot about white privilege, but mine was earned privilege and unearned privilege, and I worked hard to get what I where I where I got to, and I, I and you know built uh, figuratively and literally to a certain degree a beautiful home, and in an instant became homeless and had no access to that. In fact, there was a there was a judge who ordered that I have access to my home and, and be able to go and get my possessions. And I was met by three men in black with video cameras videotaping me who summarily proceeded to tell me that I couldn't access my home. And they just gave me a couple of boxes, cardboard boxes. And um, and I was staggered at that point. It was like Kafka-esque. Like, how, how a judge has ordered that I can go into my own home. And then I get there and the, these three goons in black um, basically, you know, telling me you're not going into your home. You can't have your possessions. Get off your own property. That is wild. And that this is a saga that obviously did not, this was not resolved quickly. As you mentioned, you were incarcerated five times. I I imagine not for any, you know, not for any particular incident, caught in an incident of violence just based off these accusations alone. Yeah, I've never been, I've not, you know, I say this too often, I've never been arrested. You know, Mm -hmm. I've never been tried for a crime. Um, I was detained each time. And this is... This is, I think, the the kind of the heart of it, Matt, the, the, that I try and explain about how um, how how horrific this 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 part of the legal system is, and you're always going to have, you know, you're an attorney. There are there are really good, upstanding ethical attorneys, and there are some who push the bar and the limits. And and in family law, there's no oversight. There's no um, there's no executive oversight. And also, the family law is very small. 
And that's something that I think people, the family law community is very insular, okay? Everybody, the, the judges know the lawyers, the lawyers know the judges. In other realms of, of the legal system, um, civil litigation, for instance, you you could go your entire career a decade not encountering the same lawyer, the same judge. It's, it's a wider community. Things in the family law world are, particularly in Los Angeles, are very incestuous, very insular. Yeah, I mean, they throw galas and parties and for each other, the judges and the attorneys, and the judges yeah. are mainly you know, from law firms. I mean, I, that's how it goes, I think, in law. You know, you mm -hmm. want judges who have an understanding and an experience of the law, and there are some really wonderful attorneys that I know. And it's a very noble profession. Uh, but, you know, I was talking with Alan Dershowitz about family law, and he was saying, you know, that's where the dreadful school go, because it's easy <laughs> money, where you don't have to work that hard. You can literally plant your own money trees. They call it churning, racking up the billable hours at the expense of, of families and children and parents. If you were willing to deal with the toxicity of the situations, that's what always uh, was tipped off to me about family. I was like, wait, I don't want to have to get my hands dirty like this. This cannot be good for your, your, you know, uh, soul. your, your, yeah, your soul and your intercon inner constitution to have to be dealing with these poisonous, hostile situations all day long. Yeah. And to, per and to perpetrate them. I mean, that's, you know, I do believe that with Amber Heard, she was encouraged by Samantha Spector to mm -hmm. um to shoot the the silver bullet of the false accusation of domestic violence and i think what's important here is you know this trial isn't about that even though that's part of it this this trial is really about whether she defamed johnny depp in that mm -hmm. article and she wrote that article i believe the first iteration of that article did mention him and mm -hmm. you know as any good uh publication uh has they have their lawyers who scour over everything and his name was removed but her name is on the article whether she had it ghost written by the aclu which it sounds like the first she almost certainly did yes she put her name to it and it was out there and i think it's really egregious when we have because it's now it's now proven you know it's in testimony that she said she would start physical fights because she'd rather keep him there um and fight with him physically than have him leave mm -hmm. and i think this cuts to the the question of our approach towards um uh domestic violence and intimate partner violence and physical abuse you know we 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 chastise and vilify and castigate rightfully so men who are physically violent towards women it's unforgivable and 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 they need to be brought to to account and held to account um but our attitude towards men who are being physically abused um has been really I mean, men get ridiculed and laughed at and you're a source of derision and um, you, you need to be stronger than that. You should, why are you putting up with that? You've been hit by a woman, <laughs> like all of that. And I think if we're looking in this era of equality um, and we want equality, then we need to say, look, abuse has no gender um, and the truth has no gender. And the fact yeah. of the matter is she it's she's now admitted to physically um, physically abusing Johnny Depp, and she and almost became a, and became a spokesperson for domestic violence. And see, that's okay. And going back to the Washington Post article, because what the the legal trick, the manipulation that they were trying to engage in was by not mentioning him directly and by not mentioning. Uh, a specific incident of violence. They thought that they could skirt behind. Well, we because defamation is about uh, a, a misrepresentation about an identifiable person. Is that oh, you can't? We we didn't identify that it was Johnny Depp, and they thought that that could save them. And it looks like that alone, at least, we'll have to see 
the the court's ruling, but at least in terms of trying to get the case dismissed, the fact that they did not uh, uh, reference his name directly or any specific incident will not it, uh, is not going to save them because anyone who's reading that knows who they're talking about and can identify that you know the the people who read this will understand that it's about Johnny Depp so that's that was uh, uh, where they got a little too cute and a little too arrogant about being able to kind of uh, use these little tricks and tactics to avoid a defamation claim. And then as to your point about, you know, not believing that that there are female abusers, I mean, Amber, I mean, she she hung it all on display for everybody to see. She said she codified all this per- imperfectly of the, once again, the arrogance and the condescension that simply nobody will believe a man. And she outright said, uh, as she's uh, heard rec- uh, recorded speaking, tell the world, Johnny, tell the world I, Johnny Depp, a white man, am a victim of domestic violence and see who who believes you see how many people take your side and she's really she's taunting him and she's taunting him and uh with the kind of the notion that nobody will believe him because hey who what type of man johnny depp supposed to be known as a swaggering you know tough leather jacket wearing 21 jump street movie star would be attacked by somebody but at, at this point regardless of you know we're on to the second half of the trial we'll see if she's able to proffer any evidence to the effect that that he was physically abusive what is unquestioned at this point is that she was physically abusive and we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break amber heard is almost doing us a favor to uh, on a larger extent of exposing exposing the lies and the fallacies of believing this could only go one way yeah, and like going back to what we talked about at the start, you know, believe all women. We should never believe all of one particular group. Uh, Every situation just... needs to be subjected to scrutiny based on the exactly. facts and circumstances. Yeah, and and and, as, and again, you know, I get why they why both sides, and it is both sides, are going into the 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 character breakdowns of, of <laughs> the other. But this is defamation trial, and uh, you know, defamation is defined as the action of of damaging the good reputation of someone slander or libel and it's a high bar as you well know and i i doubt i doubt whether he's going to win just because of the bar being so high sure we'll (laughs) see what this this jury of eight men and four women um decide but i think you know the i've said this before the trial this trial is more important than two celebrities matt it's about whether society cares enough to hold a woman accountable for falsely claiming domestic abuse and reputation savaging um a man's career um a a great career one of the best careers dare i say um i mean if you were to put someone on trial for this who was so you know someone more beloved i can't other than tom hanks and maybe a couple of others um than johnny depp those who've worked with him for decades in the industry know the measure of the man and his character Um, so, and you know, so you are, you were friends with Johnny Depp, uh, you've been friends with Johnny for quite a while with this precede Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, and, and you've known him for a while. We met at the, we met at the Viper Room, uh, actually, oh, wow. at Boulevard 20, God, probably 20 years ago, maybe, mm-hmm. um, for the first script read through of Pirates of the Caribbean one, Got none it. of us knew that it was going to be, you know, uh, a success. We just, we were doing a pirate movie and, uh, mm-hmm. it was Johnny and Jeffrey and uh, all of the cast. And then around the outside, it was nine o'clock in the morning, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> at 9am at the Viper Room, it's quite oh, a scene. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and so there was Jerry Brookheimer and the Brook, people from Brookheimer for films and uh, the Disney execs who were kind of sitting around the edges. We were sitting in the middle and, you know, actors were smoking.
smoking and you could hear these coughs from these you know executives <laughs> who weren't best pleased and that was when we met and um yeah we did the first movie together and uh coincidentally our kids went to the same school they weren't in the same year at school uh and so you know my my relationship grew from the movie and from there and then doing the the another few movies over time but knowing knowing his team and knowing the measure of who he was and how he uh, treated people and um because that's ultimately isn't it regardless of whether we going back to what we're talking about civil discourse and cancel culture it it doesn't all of the immutable characteristics they don't really matter at the end of the day they, they they're all important but none of it matters it's how we treat each other and yeah. he treated all of his employees and team and assistants and publicists and just and and fellow castmates just so beautifully and, and with with such generosity that um i do think it's 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 it, this is why i think this is a really it has the potential to be a precedent setter because he doesn't have any history of domestic violence there is no history of a criminal record and, and usually what happens in family law is judges uh, don't take that into account when they should having spoken to sitting judges in family law they, they agree they're like we you know we should be more diligent and look at a criminal record because it may not it, you know just because you haven't had a history of domestic violence or, or a criminal um, record doesn't necessarily mean that you're not you don't have the ability to do that sure but it, it's a strong indicator right then if you're you know five, 45 years of age with a clean bill of health and there's it, no this is an there. odd habit to pop up in your mid-50s right yeah yeah um yeah. you some people comment on this that during the course of their relationship that it, did, was there anything that tipped you off during the course of their relationship in terms of either this relationship not being a loving one a lot of people kind of reference uh kind of her her cold and condescending attitude or the remnants of physical violence people we've, we've at this point seen enough videos and photos of fresh bruises the injury to his hand were these things that were you were cognizant of you know before the situation came to a head well, the conversation, the, you know, we making when you've made a few movies together of, within a franchise, you know, there's always a, a conversation on set and um, offset and around in and around that. And I think it was, you know, I had Kevin McNally who plays Josh Me Gibbs in the Pirates movies, mm -hmm. and you know, he he talked about he he came on my show and talked about um, how the general perception was not particularly good, and you know the. I say it sounds a bit salacious to say the word in Hollywood because you know actors are we, we can be a prickly lot you know we we're artists sure. so nobody's perfect you know mm -hmm. but the the general consensus of everyone not nearly everyone everyone I've spoken to um, from producers to directors to studio executives to actors is that she's not a nice person yeah. um, and and it's not a crime to not be a nice person but I think. I think what happened is the two of them, you know, they probably rushed into this relationship. Who am I to judge? I'm not judging that. Sure. And there were tr troubles and issues. And you put on top of that the pressure of, of celebrity and, and uh, all that that brings, because they're still human beings at the end of the day, um, that if she hadn't fired that silver bullet, whether she chose to you know fire it herself or she was kind of nudged into it she still signed that piece of paper that declaration and went mm -hmm. after that tro if she hadn't done that we wouldn't be here today 
But be that was the moment that when she signed that, that piece of paper for the TRO, all bets are off and it won't mm -hmm. end here. This is going to go on for years. What, what was interesting to me, and you can hear this on some of the recordings, is that he's literally, he's giving her an out, saying, can we just, let's let's just separate, let's just remove ourselves from each other's worlds, and you, I move on, you move on. But, and he, he's essentially tipping her off and warning her that if you keep pushing this, you know what you've done. You know what we have evidence of. I'm not not going to put that on. I'm, I'm going to expose you. So if you keep on, if you want to continue with hostilities, all these things that you know you've done, I know you've done that there's evidence of this is going to be a conversation. And for some reason, and maybe it's because of the current milieu around Believe All Women, uh, about public hysteria, about her beliefs that no one, her insinuations that no one will believe him, that she doesn't seem scared of that. She's almost like these criminals running running around, not scared of being arrested, and that she had no fear. It, she can't. It, it would be quite the personality disorder for her to simply have removed from her memory all the things that she did that, that have been exposed to trial. But she was confident enough that nobody would believe him, that she felt comfortable pushing the envelope and publishing this and presenting herself as the damsel in distress, seemingly one-way victim of domestic abuse without saying, you know something? Hey, maybe there's some marks on my record. Maybe there's some marks on on his. But I'm I've got a lot of exposure here. It's probably best for me not to try to champion myself as the the you know Wonder Woman of domestic abuse. Uh, it was just so strange. Well, I think we have to be mindful as well the context and time. It was 2016, so you know mm -hmm. the Me Too movement was was you know in its height, and um, you know she look she was you can't once you let the once you open the Pandora's box, you know, you can't put it back in. So, um, and this is why I say domestic violence has to be tried in criminal court. It's, violence is violence. Physical violence should be tried in, in criminal court. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to the burden of proof being on the accused and not the accused, that's why we have that. You, you get your day in court. You get your Miranda rights read. You have the opportunity to be represented and, uh, represented and speak to an attorney. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you're found guilty, then you pay a price to society for that. And if you perjure yourself on the other side, or you you know you're in contempt, you you there's you're held accountable for that. But that's not the case in the quasi kangaroo courts, mm -hmm. family law, and it should be. And seemingly the only way to get recourse is to pursue a very difficult, as you said, very high threshold defamation case, um, where which is in many cases only available to celebrities because they're usually the ones where these allegations are made publicly and published widely. If this is something that's more of a private matter, you don't have that recourse. In one of your messages, one of your tweets about the the situation and you know your uh, your relationship and kind of supporting Johnny through the, this entire scenario, you mentioned that integrity is earned in turmoil, not merely asserted in comfort. Um, you know, I'm sure there are parallels between your own situation and Johnny's, um, but the the character lessons and the values that someone needs to rely on and turn to in order to weather the storm of having their life turned upside down and particularly false allegations which must spark and create an emotional reaction where you want to lash out i mean how, how you know how do you grasp that how do you stay grounded in those principles um both yourself and in, in guiding a compatriot in it Whew. that's a that's a good question it's a hard one to answer with, with a short answer um i'm reminded of um professor brett weinstein who uh who went through a horrific situation at Evergreen College that was cancelled mm -hmm. and 
you know, he was he was called racist time and time again by the, by the entire group of well, main. Let's just to make a point. He was called racist for for opposing a whites don't show up at campus day. <laughs> yeah. That was apparently right. his crime. Yeah, and and I asked him, you know, how did you cope? And he said, well, I know I'm not, and I wasn't, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's that simple for him, you know. Answering how I how I was able to endure the uh, the the life shattering events and sudden on March fifth two thousand fifteen of suddenly being becoming homeless and destitute and uh, I mean it sounds like a Hollywood movie when I say it you know they they stole my freedom they kidnapped my children they murdered my family you know my family doesn't exist anymore um, mm-hmm. my ability to be a father my sons were robbed of their fathers seven years ago. Um, that will change them and has changed them forever. Mm-hmm. Um, every child needs their father, particularly how close and how tight my sons were. And at such an age, eight and ten, how do they comprehend that psychological the split psyche, if you will, um, between mom and dad um, when adults behave badly? So how did I endure it? Well, uh, how did I overcome it? Um, I had a couple of really strong, uh, loyal um, people in my life, I would call them my team, who were unwavering. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, I was I was surprised at the people who turned their backs um, and also surprised at the people who st- stood tall beside me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's part of why I said six years ago when this happened with Johnny, I stand beside, not behind and in front of or in the wings with Johnny Depp. And, and he is the respondent. And in a way, he's fighting for everyone who's suffered the vicissitudes of this corrupt because i call it corrupt because it is uh, legal mm-hmm. legal system that is run by the cartel who you know they it's it's i mean i, I keep going back to it but it's uh they it's like a 70 plus billion dollar a year industry i call it the american divorce machine you know why why is america the world leader in children growing up in single parent households america yeah. all countries yeah. 4000 children lose a parent in family law courts every day that's 4000 children a day that's crazy um, and and of course some of that you know is understandably children you know in vulnerable positions need to be protected and need to be taken from those situations but there is a, a large amount of them um, that are removed because of incentives um, and some of those incentives were brought in by president biden when he was not president in 1974 like the vawa act and uh you know, incentivizing uh, our states to reimburse people. Uh, the states get reimbursed $6,000 for every child placed into foster care. And there are bonuses, mm. um, you know, stop grants and, and, and such to keeping those children longer. So, of course, who's going to suffer the most? The CPS and the DCFS, they have to find their, um, it's like parking enforcement with tickets. They have to get their quota. And, and the people who suffer the most are people from poor families and th- those who don't have the financial resources to um to make you know to to find an attorney or would you work. say and you know this is something i was theorizing on and it's another point that you make quite often that i think a lot of people uh, or an aspect of the family law regime that i think a lot of people are unaware of um is the no baseline presumption of 50 50 custody so nobody start the the system does not start off um anticipating equal custody amongst the parents it's always slanted in favor of the mother and and the father then has to 
prove uh, uh, that he's either worthy of equal or, you know, or an, an advantage in the custody battle. And it seems like that particular aspect of the system in all of these are remnants of an outdated era where there was just one breadwinner in the family. There was only, right. only one member of the family had financial resources. Thus, the system had to uh, make some con- some presumptive concessions to the other member. And in an era of two breadwinner families where everybody, it, for the most part, is working and certainly everybody has the opportunity to work, this, this system, it, it, this is a remnant of the mid 20th century. This is not yep. a 21st century system. And, and and that's and that's really cuts right to the quick of it, Matt. You just hit the nail on the head. We outside the courts, uh, we have, you know, rightfully so, we've moved towards more equality. Yet inside the courts, there's still this presumption that we are um, you know, father is the breadwinner and mother is the homemaker. And that's not the case. We can't have it both yeah. ways. In terms of what you said about 50-50 equal shared parenting, yeah, there's there's really four or five main areas that I'm looking that I, I'm looking to improve in family law reform, if you will. Um, one is obviously child um, child support, or as, as I call it, the child support hustle. Uh, I've written a couple of articles about uh, dead broke dads and um, black child support because it's black men who suffer the most, um, particularly in places like South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, you know where the it's 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 a horrific cycle of rinse repeat. You know uh, that that's, that's all about the money uh, and the welfare system. But the four other areas are you know the presumption of innocence that we've talked about, jurisprudence, the burden of proof must not. It must be on the accuser, not the accused. Mm-hmm. Um, false allegations of domestic violence. There must be accountability and punishment for those parents and partners who make them and people who make them. Um, parental alienation is a huge, hugely misunderstood counterintuitive area. Um, we need to educate the experts and parents and judges and attorneys on how to better notice the signs of parental alienation and hold those alienating parents accountable because it's devastating. Parental alienation is child abuse. And the lastly is 50-50 shared parenting. A, a divorce must start with the default presumption that what is in the best interest of the children is for both parents to equally share in the parenting, notwithstanding any extreme or worrying issues. Mm-hmm. And even if there are, then after the 50-50 baseline presumption of equal, or rebuttable presumption of shared parenting, they can be challenged and should be challenged. And research has shown that a rebuttable presumption of 50-50 equal shared parenting to be the single best outcome for the parents and the children post-divorce. And there's only two states right now have it we're about to get it passed in ohio well done ohio shout out to rodney creech who's representative there who has tabled this bill and it's bipartisan then we move to oklahoma i think um missouri um, and eventually hopefully all the states will have this it makes no sense to not have the starting baseline to be 50 50. that's saying that a child needs mothering and fathering and that's equality yeah Truly, and an equilibrium amongst the sexes and a, a balance in the polarity that seems to be off now from a cultural perspective is off now within the media and is certainly off as you have explained in you know in excruciating detail in the court system. And hopefully, you know, through uh, some of the, the taming down of the hysteria of recent eras, we can kind of start aiming towards a better balancing and equilibrium there. Um, and, and we'll see the, the role that the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial does or does not play in that. Greg Ellis, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, please tell everyone where they can find you and your work. Thanks, Matt. It's been a real pleasure. Um, yeah, the respondent.com. 
the respondent on YouTube, Ellis Greg on Twitter, uh, Real Grey Ellis on Instagram. And uh, I've just recently started a community, the respondent community. You can find the link to that. Uh, the respondent community, you can find that on uh, my website, therespondent.com. And that's for people who've, who've had to endure or are suffering through um, individuals and families and extended families, uh, the, the vicissitudes of family law and the injustices there. And, um, you know, there's, there's many people within that community. Uh, it's a safe space, as, as people like to say these days. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, that's really, that's uh, my book, The Respondent, which is available in the audio book as well. If someone's got eight and a half hours to, to sit down <laughs> and listen to a, um, an interesting story, I think it's an interesting story and there's music and sound effects and we're developing no the doubt. movie and the documentary. So um, yeah, this is, a, this is a, a lifelong mission for me. Very good. Well, uh, best of luck to you in that mission. Um, thank you so much once again, Greg Ellis, The Respondent, and this was The Prevailing Narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. <laughs>